Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Mind Rolling. I've got a great episode that I'm going to introduce to you. It is uh, emanates. It's It was done some months ago. I do this thing at Ramdas Retreats with Duncan Trussell. You all know Duncan. And Sharon Salzberg, who you know, of course, and David Nickturn. And um, I'm going to uh, let you know a little bit about that podcast, live podcast that you're going to hear today. But first, first, I want to talk about a new book from Ramdas called Cookbook for Awakening. And it's a it's inspired by the cookbook for a spiritual, no, for a sacred life, cookbook for a sacred life from Be Here Now. You know, Be Here Now, kind of our Bible. Uh, so this, this uh, the cookbook uh, is comprised of some amazing uh, topics from Ram Dass that were compiled uh, by my son Noah from different talks that he went in and spent a lot of time listening to get the essential parts that uh, would really uh, enlighten us all around uh, awareness and relationships and service and compassion and meditation. Uh, it's, it's absolutely uh, essential stuff from Ramdas. And the beauty of it, though, it's comes in a, it's kind of like a book zine. I don't know how else to describe it. It's got, it's a large format and it's got wonderful artwork and rare photos and it's got a, a letter that Ramdas wrote to his his uh, his Indian brother KK Shah. Many of you know KK, uh, and uh, from 1968. It's just an amazing thing to read at this point. Uh, what else? Oh, there's a beautiful just in terms of talking about some of the different artwork, original artwork. There's a beautiful uh, drawing that my friend Roger, my good friend Roger Loft. He is an incredible artist, and he did this thing of Maharaji morphing into a Shiva Lingam. Absolutely wonderful. So this is a beautiful gift or just something great to have around on the coffee table, kind of, and share with people who come into the house. Uh, and um, so it's a great gift. Gift for Christmas, gift for Hanukkah, gift for Kwanzaa, whatever it is. And just go to ramdas.org and go into the shop and pick it up. And it's cheap. I mean, I think it's 13 bucks or something. It's beautifully done. Beautiful printing. Cookbook for Awakening. Uh, and now I want to talk about something that I'm doing. Uh, as uh, If you've been listening to the podcast, I think you know I've been in India with some good friends, including Krishnadas, and we did a podcast together a couple of weeks ago, and kind of retracing our uh, steps in the north of India into the Himalayas, and uh, where we were with uh, Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji. And my wife decided to do a trip to India, a yatra, into that area, following in Ramdas's footsteps. And I, when I came back, thought, okay, I think I will join this so I can have a great time hanging out with uh, Saraswati and hanging out with Devi Hale, who works with Saraswati. He's going to teach her incredible Dao Flow Yoga. 
and Shama Chapin from Krishnadas's Posse in New York is going to be doing kirtan. I'll do some with her. We'll do some hangout and chats uh, around. Uh, oh, and we're going to be going almost every day or every couple of days. This is about a 10-day retreat, 8 to 10 days. We're going to be going to Kenchi, where we met, where many of us first met Maharaji, and uh, where Ramdas uh, met him nearby at another temple called Bhumiadar. We're going to go there, and we're going to talk about the history of that and just some of the you know wonderful stories. K.K. Shaw, who I mentioned before, he's going to be coming, and he's going to hang with us and talk about. Yeah, I mean, his family history goes back to the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, with these incredible siddhas that he met, and we're going to hear all those stories. So it's a wonderful opportunity. And, you know, many people ask me, have asked me in the past about, do you lead tours? And no, I don't lead tours. I don't even think I want to call this leading a tour, but I am going to be part of this yatra and uh, happy to do so. So go to nourishinglife.com slash yatra, and you can get all the details you can register and uh, if you need more information you can get in touch with me at info at ramdas.org i'll be happy to talk to you and fill you in okay so that's march mid-march next year 2018 himalayan yoga yatra okay Oh, and it's in a beautiful ashram in this incredible Apple Valley. It's called Ramgar, a half hour from Kenchi. I'd never been there before, and I went there uh, this this time that I was in India. So, blossom! It'll be like blooming mid-March, blooming everywhere. The trees, the apple trees, the flowers. The I mean, the food is great too. So there you go. Go get the cookbook for Awakening. Check out the Yatra. And um, and now, this is this great podcast with Duncan Trussell, Sharon Salzberg, and David Nickturn. And, and, and Duncan is just, uh, when I watched this myself, I thought, wow, I'm so lucky to hang out with Duncan. And you can hear more of him. I, I'm sure you all know there's a Duncan Trussell family hour, but... He's so honest and sweet, and he talked about, you know, meeting me for the first time and how we started the whole Ramdas podcast thing and the network and, you know, just his own journey of self-discovery. He's just a wonderful human being. He really is. And then Sharon comes and talks about uh, uh, the, the whole thing of the soul in Hinduism and in Buddhism, one would call it radiant mind. Sharon the most wisest person that I knows it is uh, also talks about her new book, Real Love, and um, just in the context of the profound sense of connection that we're uh, not uh, romantic love. Um, and then David comes in and talks about his teacher, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, who, as you all know, is one of my favorite teachers on the planet. Right, and talks about his philosophy of crazy wisdom. So crazy wisdom and uh, radiant mind, and it's all overwhelming radiance. This podcast, it's really great. So and uh, uh, you know, thanks for listening. That's all I can say. And and you guys out there, um, please do. 
subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the podcast, aside from going to BeHereNowNetwork.com. Be nice to have this burgeoning, is that a word? Burgeoning uh, podcast family. Um, and, and anything, uh, and I, by the way, I get amazing letters from people suggesting different, uh, people to talk to on the podcast. So keep doing that. And I've done it, uh, done some, yeah, some, it's been great for me to find like a whole, somebody I don't know to be able to share an hour with. It's, it's really great. So thank you. Keep coming. Keep listening. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. And by the way, everything we're talking about will be up on the show notes on the page where this podcast shall live on Be Here Now Network. So, namaste. Welcome, everybody, to our fun Sunday afternoon after the deep space of the mala ceremony. Duncan and I have been doing for a few years now, right? and uh, I don't think I have to say it again, but I will. It's just amazing. I am amazed each at each retreat at how people have heard you on the podcast, Duncan Trussell Family Hour and end up here. I mean, it's staggering, actually. And not only that, our little network, BeHereNowNetwork.com, which was inspired, and, and never mind inspired, he said, why aren't you doing podcasts? You've got to do a podcast. You just find a Ramdas talk, and you, whatever you like, a wonderful excerpt, you talk about it, and you've got a podcast. And so that Be Here Now Network, which includes Sharon and Krishna Das and myself and Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Lama Surya Das, on and on. Uh, it's now close to a half a million uh, downloads a wow. month. So it's extraordinary. And this is, it was started a year ago. So Duncan is our guru. Ah. But you know what? I do. Uh, okay, so we're talking about the podcast. I think this will be a fun thing to share. When I first, I first did a podcast with Duncan, it must be close to four years ago, I think. I think right? it was more than that. Really? Oh, my God. Maybe four. I'm not sure. So I went over to his house and uh, with uh, Allie, who's, I don't know if she's here right now, but she, oh, there you are. But can I, before you talk about coming okay. over, I, um, when, so I, the way that happened, the way I ran into you, was uh, I was super, de I get depressed. I have a problem with depression. I get really depressed. And I was super depressed and um, going through a breakup. And uh, I emailed, I don't know where I found the email. Info? Info at ramdas.org. Yeah, I think I found it there. I don't know. And I emailed just shot in the dark because someone had told me, well, if you're feeling bad, offer service and you'll feel better. So uh, <clears throat> I was in video, addicted to video games, just in the basement of my house, going through this breakup, and I emailed you guys like in this bleary, like hell state. And then you contacted me, and then we started talking, and then I said we should do a podcast. Yeah. So I, the Raghu is now going to come to my house. 
but I've never met him. But I know he represents Ramdas, who has meant an awful lot for me for a while. But being incredibly jaded and cynical at the time, I was fully prepared for some cheesy new age creep to come to my house. That's what I expected to happen. I'm like, this is, there's no way that this is gonna be cool. Like definitely what's gonna happen is like someone's gonna come and you're gonna like be a, a, some kind of awful fraud and it's gonna be really disappointing and you're gonna leave and I'm gonna be like, I knew that Ramdas stuff was crap. Man, that sucks. So I can remember having this really dreadful anticipation of meeting you and sort of like, oh, he's coming over and then your car pulled into my driveway and I look through the keyhole, the peephole to see what you are like. Because I knew I'll be able to tell right away if this guy's a jerk, he's gonna be wearing some embarrassing like robes or something. <laughs> and like, I'm looking through the... I wish I had done that. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. <laughs> but you came walking up the driveway up the sidewalk and you, you know, it's Raghu. You look totally normal. In fact, you look too normal. And I'm like, God, he sure looks normal. Man, this is going to be disappointing. He looks too <laughs> He looks too normal. He's like a normal person. And then... Uh... <laughs> you can't have it both ways. You can't know. have it both ways. But you sat down and we started talking. We did this interview. And man, like, you know, you started to, I'd never met a, anyone who'd met Neem Karoli Bob. I'd never met anyone like that. And so what was really beautiful about it is, <clears throat> I don't know, I don't want to say wolf in sheep's clothing, love, love in sheep's clothing or something. Like, That's it was, it was, uh, it was really cool about it is here's this like guy dressed like a normal human and acting like a normal, but the stories you started telling me were just exploding my brain, and it was really an intense hour for me. And, and you left, and then I went into my bedroom, and I just remember this moment. I stood in front of the mirror, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I'm like talking, I'm talking to myself, and I say, I'm, I say, I'm saying, man, that was, you got too high, that was rude. If you have a guest who comes over, you shouldn't smoke that much weed, because it's rude. And then I realized, I hadn't smoked any weed at all. <laughs> I was just high from, from getting the, the transmission or whatever it was. And that was, a ver that was the very first time I experienced what m most of you probably felt during that mala ceremony, that whatever that thing is, that thing. That thing there, yes. Yeah. Really I'll just tell you, though, when I walked, so from my point of view, I didn't know what I was getting into at all. And uh, I walked in the house, and there was a, a beautiful picture of Maharaji. Oh, yeah. Did you just put that there because you thought I'd be more comfortable? Yeah, right. No, like I was trying. <laughs> Better doing? put up the Maharaji picture. Oh, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Take down the swimsuit model. Put up the Maharaji picture. Raku's I thought over. that. I th <laughs> Like, people just have those laying around. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it was my neighbors. I was like, can I borrow your Maharaji picture? I got some devotee coming over. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. want to look cool. Got a whole stash of them. All right, well, now, 
so, but everybody, soon after that, so we started to be really in communication then. He was, I mean, he basically taught me how to do podcasts down to what equipment. I still have the same. Because it's so complicated, guys. It really yeah. is. Like, it's a real technological it's feat not to do nothing. a podcast. It's, you know how many people screw up podcasts still to this day? I mean, it's not nothing. But okay. you, you, I still have the same board that you told me to get, actually. Right. Cool. So, uh, so we started to communicate a lot. Uh, after that, and and then he called me out of the blue to talk about something that occurred to him, and uh, and there was a and then of course I said, well, why don't you come to the retreat? So that he started coming to the retreat. That's then, not how it happened. Okay. <laughs> Correct. What me. happened is. Um, you know, a lot of cool things happen here, and I think we're all in an open space, so I could talk about it without sounding completely out of my mind. But probably also many of you notice a lot of synchronicities tend to happen here. And after I connected with Raghu, these synchronicities started happening with him, where I wouldn't call you. I would be too nervous to call you. You would call me, but it would always happen that you would call me exactly at the right time, right when I was going through something. And in this case, what I was going through was uh, my mom had... Uh, died, and um, I was laying in my bed, depressed again. And but this time, like, m you know, anyone here who's lost their mom understands that that's a kind. There's nothing like that. So I was laying there, just messed, just messed up, because I'd also just been through cancer too. That happened in one year. I got testicular cancer. My mom died in 2013 dumb year and I was laying in bed and I was like just like ah, I just couldn't move I was sick and like not literally sick worse than sick and that's when my phone rang that's how it happened the phone rang and I you know you know when you're so depressed you're like I'm not gonna pick up the, yeah. I'm not gonna but I'm like oh it's Raghu hello and you said Listen, just come to, come to the retreat. I still remember it. You're like, just come to the retreat. I think you recognized that I was so out of it. You were like, just buy the plane ticket and come to the retreat. Just come. And I remember the way you said it was like, just go to the computer and buy the plane ticket. Just do it. And I sort of hobbled over the computer and bought the plane ticket and then came to the spring retreat at Lumeria, the first spring retreat. There was like 60 people there or something. It was very small. So that's how it happened. I didn't just call you up. You happened to accidentally call me in a, it, while I was just laying in the smoldering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, and at that time, and it reminds me, at that time, Roshi Joan Halifax, who was at that retreat, was at Ram Dass's, did the retreat, right? That's the retreat you were at. And we ended up, I got him over for dinner one night, and we ended up having dinner and did a podcast right there and there. That's not how it happened. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> you're brush. You got. You're brushing over how cool it was, man. Like, so. <clears throat> again, like it's easy for them to like forget how unique they are as people because they've been living in this life their whole time. They forget, and it's funny. Aliens. What? what? You're talking about aliens? I didn't say aliens. Did you hear me say aliens? Are you an alien? What? What did you hear me say? These people. Oh, these people. Well, these people are very interesting because they have a, 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 a unique incarnation. And um, 
So, I, you know, you come to this, if anyone who is here for the first time, you know, it's weird coming to a treat. It's weird. It's weird. And you come here and you're doing yoga, but it's beautiful. And all of a sudden, everyone's really kind. And they're like, and it's, it's, it's weird. You know, all this kindness and sweetness. And you're like, oh, I don't know. Is this real? It can't be real, but it is real. And so, but then <clears throat> you came up to me because they were doing trips up to like a volcano or something. And you came up to me and you're like, you're not going to the volcano. You're coming with me today. You set it up perfectly. Oh, I do remember. You're and then right. you said, you're going, you're, we're, we're, we're going to go to Ram Dass's house. Again, for you, whatever. I go to Ram, you go to Ram Dass's house all the time. It's like, no, you, but right when you said that to me, my heart is like, boom, 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 boom. Ram Dass's house, this is crazy. And, and I'm riding in the car with you to Ram Dass's house. Then, you know, you go down this, winding road and then suddenly you're at Ram, you're at Ramdas's house your mom has died you've had cancer now you're at Ramdas's house this is too much you know it's like smoke is coming out the ears and then now we're in the swimming pool i'm in the swimming That's pool right. with Ramdas Roshi Joan Halifax Azin Roshi and Ramdas and Ragu and uh the Roshi is carrying Ramdas in her arms like a, like a child. And he's laughing and she's laughing. And these are best friends. This is not, and you're just like, oh, we're just throwing the ball around. And it's, you know, it's normal. We're in Ramdas's pool with a Zin Roshi carrying Ramdas around. <laughs> it totally happens every day. Like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. And I'm... And my eyes must have been bugging out of my head. Like, I'm just like, what, what, what? And then I remember, this is when Ramdas taught me the entire thing. Um, when I get to unfold this for the rest of my life, man, it's so cool. Because we're in his pool, and it's beautiful. And I'm feeling good, you know? Damn it. <laughs> I'm not gonna cry up here. I'm feeling so good. My, my, you know, I had one of my balls chopped off. My mom had died, you know, and like suddenly I'm feeling good. It's beautiful, and like, and Ramdas is like he's he he's in the pool, and I'm looking out, and I'm like, God, this is beautiful. And then he turns and looks at me, and he goes, Ah, and that was it. That was it. That's when he taught me what it is, and that was it. And, and I knew it too. Like when he, did, I knew there was nothing he could have said, no scripture he could have quoted, no, no um, story he could have told. That was the articulation of it. And um, even now, after all this, it's gonna be fine, Duncan. And that was all in that sound. And that's an ancient sound. That might be one of the oldest sounds. That's maybe the oldest sound is. Ah, there's like very old sounds. The other sound is like, ah! <laughs> it's like the opposite. Ah. Yeah. It so is. that's ah, what happened. Yeah. It wasn't okay. like, oh, we went to Ramdas's house and did a podcast, had a salad. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Uh, so, but what I was trying to get to... You had the picture on your wall when I walked in the room. Yes. From that point to this point right now, a lot 
of stuff has gone on for you in terms of a relationship with this being. Yes. And that's kind of what I want to get at with you a little bit because, you know, of course, I know a bunch of stuff and, and there's kind of markers that have happened yes. along the way so that it's gone beyond... Because in the beginning, you would say, I just... It's through you guys and this, this, this scene and the yeah. open-heartedness of it and so on. But then something else also occurred that was more your personal connection to Maharaji. You want to talk about that? You mean the thing with the dogs? We'll start there. Uh, well, it is cool. You know, I really love the progression of this. It's really interesting. Like, I, I can remember the first time I came to the retreat here. You know, everyone's dancing to uh, the kirtan. And boy, I mean, really, like, oh, God, I was just so tight then. And like I'm walking because I had to walk past everyone dancing to sit down. And like somebody was like, uh, aren't you going to dance? And I said something snarky. I was like, not in this lifetime. <laughs> like really like I'm not going to dance. embarrassing. And uh, so I sat down and then I started thinking like, why would you say that? Like what kind of person says that? What kind of person doesn't want to dance. Who, are, who is this person saying he doesn't want to dance? That's ridiculous that you wouldn't want to dance. But then, I don't know, something does start melting the more you come to these things. And, uh, well, you know, one thing I really love about, okay, let's work backwards. Imagine, this is in the Bhagavad Gita when they talk about Krishna. Um, the verse is, I am the intelligence of the intelligent and the life of all that lives. So I love that. There's a lot of other descriptions too, but I love that one in particular. I am the intelligence of the intelligent. And I love that because from there I can kind of think, okay, what's the smartest person I know like? And then from that, the way that person acts, I can start maybe imagining, well, what would that person act like if he was 10 times smarter than that? And then what would he act like if he was a hundred times smarter? What would she act like if she was a thousand times smarter? And from that, I can kind of play around with the idea of what Krishna must be like, right? And uh, really, really intelligent people that I've met have a lot of qualities about them. They're funny. They're really funny. And they're playful. And uh, they're benevolent. I have yet to meet an evil, intelligent person. I, that has not happened yet. Like in the movies, the James Bond guy is like super smart. I've never met him. I always meet, <clears throat> when I meet really smart people, they're always sweet and benevolent. And um, so the point I'm trying to make is uh, they're also, interestingly, there's a kind of courtesy to them. Uh, you know, we say grace, and you could say there's a kind of gracefulness to them. And um, they don't intrude. They're pretty aware of social cues. They don't intrude. So if they're ready, if... In other words, they're not going to come uninvited or they're not going to, like, they don't pass boundaries that you've created. And I think that one of the interesting things about Neem Korli Baba is he seems to function in that same way, which is that it's not going to come crashing down on you in some sudden terrifying moment of being in the presence of some super intelligent being or the source of intelligence. But it happens in these wonderful increments, these tiny little moments of what that that just happened that's so simultaneously funny and beautiful and impossible and it makes you laugh but it doesn't overwhelm you 
Because it, if, if it overwhelmed you, you could, be, you could become manic. You could become a fanatic or you could become crazy. Or, so it's these very sweet little visits, I would call them. Sweet little visits. And one of them that happened to me was, uh, I was so, I mean, guys, this is ridiculous. But I was sitting in my kitchen and um, I had smoked some marijuana. And <laughs> I was sitting in my kitchen and... Uh, one of my dogs, I have two dogs and a cat. One of my dogs came and like sat next to me and I'm petting my dog. And then the other one came up and sat next to me and I'm petting the other dog. And usually they fight, it was weird. Usually they don't let that happen, but they were cool with it, right? And, I'm, and then the cat came and sat in my lap. And I'm looking at the cat and the dogs and I'm thinking, God, I love you. I love you, I love you so much, I love you. I don't care, Gatsby that you pissed on the oriental carpet that my mom did therapy on like many times. Like I've forgiven, I forgive you for that. Like if you did that, you know, like if Raghu came to my house and peed on the carpet my mom gave me, I'd never forgive you. It'd be hard to forget that. I'd always bring it up. Remember that, why'd you do that? Remember when you did that? But with Gatsby, it's like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. And the cat, oh, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. I love you. And, and Fox, I love you. I love you. And then I, this thought popped into my head, which is like, well, I bet, I think Neem Karoli Baba felt like this exact same way, but for everything. And that's when I felt him. It was like, wow. He was there. Like it was, I don't know how to explain it. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but it was right there. He was looking at me the way I was looking at my dogs. I could feel it. And he was like, I love you. I love you no matter what. Just the story you tell. And it was beautiful and, and, and overwhelming in just the right way. And it didn't last, but the moment did happen. <laughs> so I had that. That did happen. You know, isn't that nice? I love that story, actually. Do you know that I think you know, there's Dada Mukherjee, one of our mentors. He lived in Allahabad. There's plenty of stories we tell that take place there. And uh, he tells, he used to tell us many stories of dogs coming into his, that he would feed and so on and so forth. And Maharaji would comment on them, and he was always praising him about so there was something about, which are the, you've been to India, you know how terribly dogs, well, there's no cats, you can hardly find cats, but dogs are treated. Yeah. Yes. And so there's a lot of, so I'm saying dogs were kind of prominent, certainly in, in Dada's case, huh. there were stories like this. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that correct? Um, that's all we get about. Is what's happened a little further down the line, because the do that dog story was a few years at least two, two, three years ago. But you would still have this kind of uh, attitude that it would be your guru. You know, you guys, it's nice and everything that, you know, the stuff we do with Pete Holmes, remember all of that? Yes. Yeah, well, eventually you just have to, I mean, eventually that game gets boring. And you, it's a, that's a fun game, which is like, you know, it's a fun game. And then I was playing that and it's fun. But event, you have to be, I think, with this kind of thing, it's good to be honest and empirical. And it's funny because you can fall on the, uh, 
you can like start pretending you're, that's not happening to you because it's may it's like not cool. It's like really like in, if you look up not cool in a lot of different circles, not cool. Be like, yeah, you know, my guru is this like disembodied. Forget it. I'll tell you later. It's like <laughs> it's like not. It's so strange. So uh, and especially like you know, doing a podcast, there's a lot of hesitation in some, and like you kind of, you go through a period of wanting to, of making the the worst mistake you can make in your life, which is to try to be cool or, or like tune in with what you think is going to make people like you or something. That's a, a, a rotten mistake, easy one to make. Uh, and then, um, <clears throat> yeah, so there's been a, I don't want to call it a progression. I really like what Ramdas talks about, about the, uh, <clears throat> the t the soul realm or the soul you know the self and we we both wrote this quote down the very beginning of this thing i think sharon you said this i'll see if i can find it really quick in my phone i remember we were both like typing this in at the same time you and i yeah hmm. let me find it here sorry i i didn't expect to pull this out but it wasn't leave it to beaver no, it was not Leave It to That was the best thing I ever heard him say. I thought it was pretty good. No, it was this beautiful... Sharon has it memorized. Uh, oh, he has find a prompter. It, here. it is... Um, ah, here it is. The, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. And I really like that a lot. And uh, I think that <clears throat> that natural radiance of the mind or that essential nature of the self that... Uh, Ramdas calls the soul. So it's weird to say progression, as though that thing could get abs or something. Like, oh yeah, my my soul is like getting these amazing biceps right now. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful soul. It's been doing cross training and it's flexible. But um, so, so that thing. Uh, you know, I was just talking to David Nickturn and, 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 and about this experience I had in, within uh, doing ketamine therapy. And he said, what did you take from that? Like, what, what is lasting? What, I don't remember his exact words. And what, what I took from that is what I already knew from this. But the two go together very well, which is that there is a part of the self that is eternal, seemingly, or for, even though that's a ridiculous word, because what does that even mean? Radiant is a better word than eternal. There's a radiant part of the self that lays underneath everything. And this has helped me really feel that inside of me. And that, I don't, once you get that contact, even if it gets covered up with clouds, you know, it's like, only a lunatic would be like, if it's a cloudy day, would be like, ah, oh, it's going to be cloudy forever. Right. You know the sun will come out again. Yeah. So that is, I think, what, yeah, if there is something, yeah. that is the thing that mm. I have taken away from this mm. practice that you've taught me. Well, Sharon, I think we need you now. <laughs> Sharon Salzberg, everybody. The Buddha said that.
I guess I want to, uh, I keep having this thing because we, we do so much, uh, so many things together from the bhakti tradition and the Buddhist tradition. And, and you're talking about, well, Ramdas was talking about soul and you went and talked about, and you referred to it as radiant self eventually. There can't be, I mean, what is the deal? I mean, I've never, it's ne there cannot be two different things, right? So this, this thing that radiant self is a good word, I think, actually. I mean, for soul, but talk about that a little bit. <laughs> what the hell are we talking about? I'm not sure. I mean, we've uh, got to straighten no. out soul and Buddha mind. That's what I want to try. And That's probably been debated what but it's, it's semantic you know like yeah. um the word uh brahma you know is uh uh meaning god right in hinduism or atman is that self that is um reflective of that god part inside oneself so uh, i moved into a new sublet in new york city and the doorman said to me my name is atman that's like batman without the b <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, no, I know what it is. <laughs> I lived in India for a really long time. Um, you know, I, I think it's just semantic. I wouldn't say, what is this thing? Because that also reifies it. Yeah, like, then, yeah. you know, yeah. radiant yeah. mind is kind of good. Be interested in hear what David has to say because it, it can imply more process, something that's alive and flowing and moving rather than like, oh, I reached the the basement, and now there's the package, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing. <laughs> it, it's in process all the time. Yeah. I want to go back to the uh, theme of the retreat a little bit and uh, just talk some of the things that we talked about that we didn't maybe elaborate enough. And uh, especially... Uh, in light of your book, Real Love, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, I always talk to you about anger because that's certainly one of the most uh, difficult things personally that I have dealt with in my life. And I wonder, is there a way in which the development of, let's talk about what real love is first, and then is there a way that it can hold some of these difficult emotions in a way that really truly transforms them? Uh, well, it has to, right? Otherwise, it's occupying a pretty tiny part of our existence, you know? Yeah. It has to be able to hold all those, everything. Um, the glorious feelings and wonderful experiences and the painful, difficult ones that we don't want and everything in between. So, um, I was talking about real love in the context of like a, a very profound sense of connection. So it's like no part of ourselves left out, no part of life left out. So it's being fully connected. And um, that was the distinction when I was speaking the other day, you know, between liking somebody and maybe loving them and that you can have that recognition our lives are intertwined. Everybody matters, everybody counts, everybody wants to be happy. You're not coming home with me, you know. I'm not giving you any more money, whatever it is, you know. I'm not spending time with you. It's not safe, whatever discernment or, or intuition tells us. But 
in that heart space, there's inclusion rather than exclusion, rather than the, the kind of blockade. Like, oh, well, you're other, you know, you're, you're beyond that, or this part of me is beyond that. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's, it's really helpful, I and mean, this is very Buddhist, of course, you know, but it's like you look at those emotions like anger um, and really just say, okay, like I'm going to watch the anger movie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accompany this space with uh, interest, you know, rather than my usual feeling of being appalled at myself or, you know, frightened or whatever it is. Like I am just going to hang in here. Uh, and you just go right to the heart of what you're feeling. And so in terms of the transformation, that element, um, they would say, you know, like in, in Buddhist psychology, there are very positive things about anger. There's energy, right? There's a kind of assertion. There's a life force. It's not being passive. It's not being complacent. Um, but it's also, uh, there's a lot of uh, destructive elements, clearly, to anger. You know, they liken it in the Buddhist psychology to a forest fire which burns up its own support, so it can destroy us, right, as the bear, it can kill us. And like a forest fire, it can burn really wild, and we might end up someplace very far from where we want to be. You know, so the, the transformation of the state happens not from denying it or trying to pretend it's not there, but almost like capturing the energy without getting caught in the rest. Because, you know, as I said the other day, it's like one of the f characteristics of anger uh, states like anger or fear is incredible tunnel vision. It's like, you know, if you have a tendency toward anger or fear, you emerge from those times and you go, whoa, what was I thinking, you know? Yeah, right. Like, that was, like, so narrow. That was so punishing. That was so awful. Like, that makes no sense, you know? And the reactions, those are the killers at that point. No, I just, can I say, I just saw to go along with this. I was watching Locked Up Raw. Have you ever seen that show? No. Oh, it's great. It's like, uh, they, it, you guys, you know what I'm talking about, Locked Up Raw, right? They take, it's like people in prison and uh, they film their lives. And so there's this prisoner who's teaching meditation to the other prisoners. And you see him, and I said, because I'm, this was at this retreat. I'm like, oh, cool, look at that, a prisoner teaching meditation. It's like, you know, you breathe in, breathe out. And it was, he seemed to be doing a pretty good job. Then it cuts to him in his cell after having just beaten the heck out of somebody. And the, the guard is like, the, the narrator is like, the, I guess the meditation didn't work. <laughs> and, and I was thinking like, no, it worked. It's just he didn't hold on to it long enough, right? It's like, we'll see if it worked by how calm he is in his cell when he finds out that he's got to go to, like, solitary for, for three years. Three years. Yeah. But it didn't work, because he was like, this is ridiculous! But I, um, I was... But I did... I was thinking, like, how... What you're talking about with anger in this particular practice is not so... I don't think you're saying this is going to get me to a place where I don't go into tunnel vision, but at least, like, it gives us a place after the tunnel vision where we can go back into the forest after it's been burnt down and start planning, yeah. rebuilding. Rebuild. But yeah. that's so hard, Sharon, because you really hurt, I, you don't, I really hurt people when I'm angry. Yeah. 
And how do you fix that? Like even going to them and saying, oh, I had tunnel vision, you see. I just sort of fell out of my meditative state when I was throwing your clothes across the room. It was a state of tunnel vision. How do you, it, like, <laughs> which has happened to me. How do you, it, it, I, it messes your life up, man. Totally, totally. But how do you fix that? Like, how do you go back and fix that? How do you tell someone, I'm working on myself? Well, that, I mean, that is not, I mean, I would rather have that message. Like, I had tunnel vision. I was lost. I, I lost all perspective. I lost my mind. I'm sorry. Rather than, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, like, that's a big improvement, right? That's, re that's revealing something about yourself. It's being vulnerable. It's being truthful. And it's, in effect, asking for forgiveness. So go for it. I would say that. And also, it's not so much that you, that we get into the anger and then afterwards we can start rebuilding. But it's like I was saying the other day, we go in and out and in and out and in and out. Even in the midst of the conflagration, there are moments where we're saying, wait a minute, I don't want to go there. And then we get pulled in. Can we and talk about that moment? Because yeah, yeah. that moment is, for me, something I've noticed there, which I, I find very unsettling, is you say pulled in. It's more like, oh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay angry. And that's pretty... That's Which pretty is what I was talking about the other day. The exact same thing, piling on. It's not piling on. I mean, I'm, do you know what I'm talking about, yeah, Sharon? Where yeah, it's yeah. like, there is not a, it's not as though the anger is a, a vacuum. Right, you're kind of righteous. Yeah. Like, let's I'm go gonna, for let's it. Go for let's it. attack. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. this is a... I am... Yeah, exactly. I am right, and, and I am going to lay waste to your kingdom because you deserve it. What about that? What do you do about that? <laughs> it's the same. I mean, there's only one thing to ever do, which is you could say it as loving awareness or you could say it as mindfulness. Or, but I think the way we remember more and more in the midst of that righteousness, which is a very, very intense state, is that we honestly f let ourselves feel the consequences of having harmed somebody. You know, it, it's like that, that kind of sensitivity. The Buddha said also something very beautiful. He said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. If you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And part of what we feel in those terrible moments of like, whoa, look what I did or look what I said, is also reflective of that lack of love for ourselves. It's so painful. But if we try to avoid that pain, we don't have as much inspiration as we might in the moment when that righteousness arises, you know, there could be another voice that says, feels like that's strength, but wait a minute. Remember how bad it felt last time? Right. You know? Right. That's key right there. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Um, so there's some, there's some article that I found. There's an interesting um, add-on to this issue that I picked up here. When someone insults us or does something unkind to us, an internal formation is created in our consciousness. If you don't know how to undo the internal knot and transform it, the knot will stay there for a long time. Uh, after a while, it's very difficult to transform. To undo the knots, we cannot ease the constriction of this crystallized formation. It actually has a Sanskrit word called Samyojana, right? They actually developed a whole nomenclature around this crystallization of knots that form. Samyojana. Maybe it's, you know, who knows. Um, 
so with the practice of meditation, we can undo these knots and experience transformation and healing, and that's what you're talking about. But here's the, uh, the difficulty. Not all internal formations are unpleasant, right? They are also pleasant internal formations that can still make us suffer. When you taste, hear, or some, see something pleasant, then that pleasure can become a strong internal knot. When the object of your pleasure disappears, you miss it and you begin searching for it. You spend a lot of time and energy trying to experience it again. If you drink, you drink alcohol and you begin to wa binge watch television. I added that on in there. I don't binge watch TV anymore. You don't? No, I mean, you're what happened to the last, last thing the last we were up here? The last retreat I asked about. Yeah. The la what he's referring to is the last retreat. Because <laughs> what I'd been doing was like drinking whiskey and watching. Um, God, it's such a good show. <laughs> See, I can't even remember it now, but like I'd like discovered what I thought was this delightful pleasure, which was I would pour whiskey for myself and sit down and watch. Westworld! Yeah, that's it, yeah. And uh, it was, oh, <laughs> right, because it's, no, because it's cowboys, and they're always drinking whiskey. So it was like, oh, like, I'm a Westworld cowboy enjoying Westworld. But I, I asked a question, and I really did mean it, the last ret retreat, because uh, what I was doing is I was thinking, well, as long as I'm mindful while I consume this whiskey <laughs> and watch Westworld, it's a practice. Like, this is my meditation. And, uh, and so my question was, is that a practice? And I believe, and, and Sharon said, well, it may be a practice, but you're practicing the wrong thing. <laughs> I was just saying, I'm so glad you moved to New York. We can do this in person a lot. Yes, <laughs> like, I hope so. You can just call me up and say, is it a practice? But then I have an add-on to that because after that, there were some people at the retreat who were uh, tantric. And they came up to me and they're like, no, 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 no. It is a practice. It was it sometime after 1910. They, applying mindfulness in this state of uh, gi giving oneself pleasure is a can actually be a, pr a practice and i thought about it and and, and i i think i i think that's true too strangely and also it's important to note there's no more west world and i don't like whiskey anymore so it didn't last anyway so it doesn't matter i don't it just went away it was just a temporary yeah. transient thing no i think it can be a practice but i think it's a, of course it's a tricky practice and right it's like a practice of fearlessness too you know like oh look at that i can go here well, are okay, I, but are we really okay? But I, I can, I, you know what? I'm going to throw out something no one's ever, I would bet a million dollars no one's ever said before. You know what really helped me with my anger problem? Whiskey. When I'm really feeling angry, I just start drinking whiskey and the anger just goes away. That doesn't happen. Maybe some of you it does, but that doesn't happen for me. Booze isn't really, doesn't go, it doesn't go well with anger problems at all. Say so, the least. What? To say the least. To say the least. So, yes, I, I know. I, so for the tantric people out there, I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. It's a, there's something beautiful in every, in every form of life, right? Like even when you were angry, even when you're decimating your enemy's kingdom, that is still in a strength. That's still perfect, right, Raghu? Do you think that I know that that kind of a thing is perfect? I don't 
He knows. That was the I idea. don't know. Everything's perfect. Yeah, but that was told to Ramdas when he was trying to drive his Volkswagen bus to Bangladesh to save people. And Maharaj said, no, you don't need to go. Don't you realize, Ramdas, it's all perfect? He said that to Ramdas, being who he is, which is living in that perfection. And Ramdas admits it today. He can't say that because he's not living in that perfection where we understand that. There's actually... So everything's not perfect. It is perfect. We just... But to know it with your mind is not possible. But if you're saying you're not living in perfection, then you're not okay, perfect. Okay, you're... No. Well, I'm making a good point. <laughs> it's a good point. I mean, I don't know. That's a problem. It's a little logical problem, isn't it? Tell, say it again. Okay. If the premise is that everything's perfect, and you're saying, well, yeah, wait, we wait, can't... Wait, wait, the premise... The premise... He said everything's perfect, right. right? That's not the premise. That's his, he's living everything's perfect. Oh, he's can. saying everything's perfect. Can I, have a, can I have a question? Can I ask a question? What does perfect mean? It doesn't See you guys mean, later. I'm going swimming. I mean, it doesn't mean <laughs> pleasing, right? Everything's pleasing. Everything is... No, it doesn't mean pleasing. Great. You know, what does it mean? What does it mean to you? <laughs> You're the one with the guru, Raghu. <laughs> It means the 10,000 horrible visions and the 10,000 beautific visions, that they are all part of reality. Right. Right? But we don't know that, is all I'm saying. We know that with our minds, but we don't experience that whatsoever. I mean, that's not true. Yeah, Some well, I hear the word perfect, and I, you know, no doubt mistakenly use a very conventional meaning, like... Everything is like great, you know? right? Like, right. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I think I, I, I love. I mean, I love that is a, a beautiful thing to say, and I know that people hear that. I was talking to someone, and specifically, or and by the way, I know many of you may have like reasons that you like the president right now, and some of you don't like the president. I'm not trying to get like some political thing going, but um, someone was saying like, you know, how does this everything perfect apply to the president? Like, you're say everything's perfect, you know? And, and uh, you know, the thing that I think of is um, when I think of everything's perfect, they, I, I'll scan for one, one vision in my mind that I can't get out of my head is uh, a YouTube video I saw of a hyena sitting inside a rotting uh, elephant carcass. And, like, it, it had kind of been liquefying. So, like, the hyena's, like, sitting in the, in the carcass just like dipping its head, like it's like in a hot tub, but it's a hot tub of rotting elephant sludge. And it's like dipping its head in and like shaking it, like, ah, oh, finally, a good rotten elephant. I, you, don't, you don't find them these days. And like, here's a great one, like the old days. But um, I look at that and I think, well, that hyena's not evil. That's just a hyena. And the elephant dying wasn't evil, and that moment in nature isn't evil. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's like, um, it actually reminds me of the George Carlin. Are there children here? It's that great George Carlin joke. 
If you know that you guys know the one I'm talking about where he's talking about like environmentalism. He's like, the earth wants plastic. Maybe the earth wants plastic. That's why I made humans, because the earth wants plastic. But he says, uh, <laughs> but he says, the earth is ancient. The earth is fine. Don't worry, the earth is gonna be fine. But humans, humans are fucked. <laughs> So sorry to curse in here. I'm so sorry. But the, but the point is, that's perfect, too. That's perfect. How does this relate to the President Trump? What? How does it relate to President Trump, the hyena in the elephant sludge? Trump's the hyena. America's the elephant, oh, obviously. Great. Oh, <laughs> And it's perfect. Oh, my God. All right, we have to call for Mr. Nickturn to come up and help us out here. We need two Sorry. teachers. Can we get a chair for David? You have to bring your own chair and microphone, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that to him, for God's sake. What else, man? Great. Oh, my. Um, here comes a chair. Now, many of you may only know David uh, seeing him here as Krishnanas' guitar player, and his, uh, by the way, he's produced a number of Krishnanas' records. David is a fantastic musician and a wonderful Buddhist, wise Buddhist teacher as well. He's a man of all. David Nickturn, everybody, give him a big round of applause. He's awesome. I've done two podcasts with him. They're both really good. You're well, back. we can scoot. We can scoot. Maybe we can make it reach. You can use mine. All right. David Nickturn again, everybody. Let him hear it one more time. David Nickturn. Yes, thank you. Yeah. We need them. David is also... A student uh, of Trumpa Rinpoche. student of Trumpa Rinpoche. For those of you who don't know Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, um, he would be worthy of Googling up... Uh, a who, cl clap if you've heard of Chogyam Trungpa. Oh. oh, good, good, okay. Chogim, can I, one, very quickly, I'm not going to keep yapping. One of my favorite Chogim Trumpa, um, I don't know if you call it a quote, I, I had one of his books here, and I was reading it here during one of the retreats, and uh, it was beautiful, because, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I, I don't know, so what can happen at these kinds of retreats is you start thinking, like, because you can't articulate a thing, therefore it must be God or something, but in this... Uh, Chogyam Trumpa was saying, okay, so what, what happens is people say, uh, I, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't, it's not expressible. I don't know what it is. I can't say what it is. So therefore it must be miraculous. It must be divine. And, and what Trumpa said is that is like taking your craziness and putting it on an altar and worshiping it. You end up enshrining your insanity as some kind of special, miraculous state of consciousness, when in fact it's just insanity and it's something you should let go of. That's the kind of teacher Chogyam Trumpa uh, seems to be merciless and just certainly, and which is why when you see the interaction between Trumpa and Ramdas, it's hilarious yeah. because they both have seemingly antithetical POVs. Is that safe to say? No, no not totally. No. Trump it's, it's true. Ashes. Seeing them together is fa But there he is flipped some ashes in Ramdas's hair. Yeah, but it, it, was, it was lovingly done. It wasn't as a, a, okay. as a put down. It was like uh, Vibhuti, right? Were you there then? Yeah, so was I. We didn't know each other. <laughs>
a long time ago. Uh, it's the, the, Sharon was there too. You were there in 1974 in Boulder? No, this was in No, Carmen this Killing. is Tar oh, yeah, Tale yeah. of the Tiger. Uh, so when we you had were there during the ash flip, you saw that happen? Wow. Yeah. That we was an incredible moment. What? We, was, we were with Ramdas. You were there too? Mm -hmm. So oh. Trumpa says to Ramdas, the question was, as I recall, what is power? Do you remember that? I don't remember the dialogue. So the dialogue is the question to Ramdas is, what is power? And Related I to Don Juan. That uh, book. The clip yeah. I see. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I didn't know that that was the thing. But he yeah. said, what is power? I guess he was talking about Carlos Castaneda. And I believe Ram Dass's response initially was, I don't... I'm not into power. That's not... I'm, I'm the power of love. Is, he, he said yeah. something like, I'm not really into power. And Trump's response was, please. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and it then was beautiful. It, Wasn't that his response? Yeah. I'm not exaggerating. Yes, no, it was. That. Exactly. Yeah. And then he went on about responsibility, which was a fantastic uh, part of this whole thing. If you can, f you can find it on ramdas.org in our library. Um, we love Trumpa. And uh, David has been, as I said, with us through the grace of coming along with uh, Krishnas's band. And, um, but it's something that we certainly on the Be Here Now network, we've done a lot of different things about him, and, uh, and I've done something with David on, on a podcast as well. Uh, crazy Wisdom certainly is the, the primary, I'd say you could say t primary. Could you talk about him a little bit from you? Because you spent real time with him. And, and Sharon married my son. Not, Not literally, <laughs> but... Uh, I officiated. Oh, wow. I officiated. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be taken the wrong way. But I would have... Welcomed you into the family. If Thank you happened. so much. <clears throat> we, we would have had to get a different priest, though. That was so. Uh, what was the question? Just talk about Trump, because we just oh, brought okay. him up, and, and he's just in the air a little bit. Yeah. But put the mic close to your mouth. Yeah. We okay. We'll contextualize. This whole group of people, and this is what's so interesting about it. We were connecting with each other 40 or 50 years ago. KD was floating in and out there, but I didn't know any of you then. The, the meeting ground was Naropa Institute. Have, have it, any of you heard of Naropa in Boulder, Colorado? So that might be a great little dot on the map to put in. Naropa was Trungpa Rinpoche's vision for starting a, a kind of open-ended Buddhist university in the West. It didn't exist at all. And he kind of, as he did with a lot of things, uh, visualized and then actualized um, all kinds of situations to bring uh, Buddhism into the West. So I think it's fair to say he was the seminal Tibetan Buddhist teacher to bring Tibetan Buddhism to the West, and many others came, of course, afterwards. Um, and he was extremely um, fearless, I think is the best word, in terms of bringing the authentic teachings but trying new contexts and not holding on to old forms that became obsolete. So for, for, for himself, he was raised from the age of two in a monastery in Tibet, and to be the head of the Sermon monasteries. But when he came to the West, he, I think he quicker than most people realized we're not in Kansas anymore, you know? And he saw it, so he disrobed, he married an English woman and moved to the United States. And then he really uh, kept the traditional teachings very, very much intact with a team of 10 translators working for several decades. Um, but at the same time, he began to kind of uh, push the envelope of the form. 
including a lot of Western form, but also including Japanese culture and all kinds of things. So Naropa uh, was a nothing. It was like an encampment, really, at the beginning. And in those days, uh, I think Ramdas was very interested in Trung Pro Invite. And yeah, they were, no, they, we spent real time yeah, back then. They spent yeah. real time. And they had a dialogue at Naropa one summer, which is the one you're referring to. And Ramdas came. I used to go in. I met Trung Pro Invite in 1970. And then uh, Ramdas was coming up to this place called Tale of the Tiger, which is in Vermont now. It's called Karmic Chilling Meditation Center, great retreat center. And uh, so that summer, there was this 10-day uh, workshop. You were there too? No, you were in the one in Boulder. Okay. So about Don Juan, and kind of uh, that was the topic. And Ramdas was sitting at Trumpa's feet, you know, as a sort of honored guest. He was sitting right next to the teacher. He was brought up. He brought him up. Yeah, but he was sitting right, right here as, as Rinpoche is giving the talk. And Rinpoche, one of the things that he did was um, he kind of took on a lot of Western cultural accoutrement. He smoked cigarettes, which didn't have the same connotation then as it, as it does now. He drank sake, and he wore Western clothes. He was kind of a completely uh, took on a Western kind of a, a appearance, you know, and, and activity. And so he was smoking his cigarette while he was talking about Don Juan. And Ramdas is right here kind of looking, as I remember, very lovingly up at the guru, which is sort of the um, more traditional Hindu style of, of devotion is kind of very um, um, adoring, you could say. Um, and Rinpoche just took the cigarette ash and just went on the top of his head. Now, having had similar experiences, I think the student could experience that as an insult that would be one way to take it, and the other is as a kind of blessing. Totally. I had similar experiences, and you yeah. could take it either way. Yeah, and well, I mean, and we said I think yesterday with Maharaji when we when we started to be able to some of us started to be able to speak Hindi, and we really know um, the kind of approbation that he was shouting at us and and other people around, and when the Indians told us the more of that, the better, that. That showed his deep affection and f a freedom to be able to just be uh, around, you know, people that uh, they weren't um, taking it personally. None of that was going on. They got it. And in the same way, uh, Trumpa was doing that kind of a thing. I think that's one of the most difficult things to learn is that teachers aren't always going to act the way you think a teacher should act. And to when when they start moving outside this little keyhole of behavior that you think a teacher should have it, it really can turn a lot of people off or scare people off or make people worried but how can you tell the difference between a neem karoli baba or a chogim trumpa and, and maybe somebody who really is acting inappropriate as a teacher because I think a lot of people get nervous about being taken in by somebody who isn't cool. When is it abusive and when is it enlightenment? And how, do we, how can we tell the difference so we can protect ourselves if we do happen to come into contact with other teachers maybe than the ones we meet here? You want to take a shot? Please? Oh, you start. <laughs> I'll go with you. So just first thought, best thought was a big uh, Trungpa saying. First thought, best thought. Like, get, get your mind clean, and then some kind of spontaneous insight usually comes out straight. If you start to work it too much, you know, you lose the thread. 
So my first thought was, before you asked that question, <clears throat> was a true blessing is also an insult to the ego. If you think about it. So you can't just make everybody feel good all the time. That's not, that's not really the job of a guru, actually, to, to booster. So there is a kind of destructive aspect or dismantling aspect. But it, it's not based on that teacher blowing themselves up even more uh, and becoming kind of uh, more puffed up. And the whole thing begins to feel toxic, where the teacher's really puffy and the students are really scrambling and, and, and kind of, and nobody else has any kind of intelligence or any kind of insight. And that, we got warned about that from minute one. Oh, yeah. Be as sharp as possible. And we actually come from uh, somewhat different Buddhist traditions, but I would say that a part of that kind of warning is um, certainly in the like Thai, Burmese, Theravadan tradition is, is the recommendation that you always be able to ask questions. Like you have to always be able to question, otherwise you're stuck in someone else's vision of what's true. Like one of my early teachers, this man named Manindra, that many of us studied with, said to me once, um, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. You know, right. and so if you, you know, if you found yourself in a situation where questioning was forbidden and you had to simply um, be devoted in a way where you could never express your doubt or your uncertainty, they'd say, like, basically, get out of there, you know. That, that's interesting, just the... Uh what you just said about what, the Buddha, what Munindra's quote, um, where Maharaji quoted as well, same thing. I've done everything. I leave the mind to you. This creates, by the way, Raghu, you know, and everybody, a triangle situation between Sharon and myself and, and your Sangha, because your Sangha is a tantric Sangha. In other words, the idea of devotion and bhakti is extremely strong. And in Tantra, Buddhist Tantra, the idea of devotion and um, surrender is a peak uh, kind of aspect of it. In the Theravadan tradition, it's not. It's, and, and the classic grounded Buddhist tradition, really you're, the teacher is simply a preceptor and is saying, you should think about this, you should think about that, and you're kind of on your own. So what I have in common with you guys is a certain level of, of kind of... Uh, Yes, sir. You're, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to surrender my uh, personal take on this for the, to the guru. And what I have in common with Sharon is uh, we should take a look at this more carefully. <laughs> Can you imagine putting those two together? Yeah. <laughs> we had it, though. We did have it put together okay. by him, by the fact that we were sent to Buddhist. That's where we met Sharon, uh -huh. right? In a Vipassana course in, right. in Bodh Gaya. And, and also many different lamas. I mean, he used to talk about lamas. Uh, for, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Kalu Rinpoche, mm -hmm. I remember. And in my own case, he told me I was going to see Kalu Rinpoche right. before I even knew who Kalu Rinpoche was and have his darshan, and he gave me this whole teaching. I mean, it was all... So there was a tremendous connection for us with Buddhism and then, you know, this famous story that uh, Krishnadas had a bad knee and he was in a lot of pain. And we weren't supposed to go see Maharaj. He was in Brindavan. 
And he said, help me out. You've got to take me there. I, I need help. I can't stand this anymore. And we went over to the temple, and they did let us in, and Maharaji was there, and he's limping over. I'm holding on to him. I sat down with him. And he, he then got up, you know, just a few words of hello, and then he got up with, with an Indian man, and he walked around the courtyard, and then he started limping, Maharaji. And Krishna said to me, oh, God, I, th I guess he's taking this on. My God, you know, something like that. And he came back, and he told them to put this so special salve on it. He'd be fine, and so on and so forth. And Krishnadas had his diary there. And uh, Maharaji opened it, and he had written a couple of stanzas from uh, Mahamudra. And he had the guy read it to him, and Maharaji went, Tik, <laughs> right. And then flipped the page, and there was a picture that Krishnas had put of Maharaji in there, and he said to us, who's that? And we were going, very funny, ha-ha, yeah, funny. You? He goes, nay, Buddha. So there was a lot of mm -hmm. identification for us. Yeah. So in terms of, yes, the bhakti tradition, but also we did, I mean, look what we're doing right now. Look what's happening. And it's every retreat that that wisdom of the Buddha is being uh, combined with, uh, with our bhakti tradition in a way that I think is a... That's why we called our app the Heart Mind app, okay? Can, can, we, can we apply some of this to what, what happened at the uh, mala ceremony? Because yep. one, of, one of the things that David has done for me, uh, you, it's amazing. It, one of the things you taught me, because we did a podcast and I told him how, uh, man, I had this experience meditating once where I really became, I, I became, I merged into everything. I always think about that moment meditating. It was incredible. And I was telling is you. Is this that, a true story? This is a true story. I was telling David this and, he's, and you, your response was, well, let's stop. Let's look at that experience. What was that experience? What, did it last? And then you, you said, Let's can it be broken up? Can you break it into pieces and look at it? And, and then the more that you walked me through this process, the more I realized, ah, that experience was nothing. That was just nothing. Like it was really, I didn't, I had it, and then I just labeled it as a heightened state. But, and then all my other times I would meditate, I was comparing it to that moment, and all the other times stunk. And, it, and you made me realize I was trapped in this heightened state. So I would love for the, all of you to help me understand what is it during... One of the things many people report when they sit in front of Ram Dass, when they do the mala ceremony, is a kind of radiance or a feeling of being overwhelmed by some kind of energetic field. People start crying, they don't know why. There's a real feeling of intoxication that happens. It is potent and, and, and remarkable. Can you comment on what that is? From, what, what is that? What is that experience? Do you have a word for it? Is there some scientific explanation, some metaphysical explanation? What is it? Okay, well. <laughs> Why do you say that? So, first of all, I wanted to let you know that the advice I was giving you was actually from the entertainment business. 
Really? Yeah, what have you done for me lately is what it really is. Oh, okay. interesting. Yeah. Okay, so, that's cool. Yeah, you had a hit, but so what? You yeah. know what I mean? Cool. Um, so, <clears throat> we want to hear the new demos, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, um, the word comes to my mind, and everybody can say or no, but Adishtana is the word, I think. Adishtana. It's uh, a con an anointment or a blessing, a, a richness in the texture of the environment that comes about, it's really what you, I think, would call the grace of the gurus, you know. It's a kind of rich energy in the environment where you, um, and many people have had this with, with Maharaji and with Karmapa and uh, Dalai Lama and other great teachers, it's like the atmosphere shifts. And I, I, when Pete and I talked about this on his podcast, I called it 220 as opposed to 110. It shifts to a kind of higher voltage. And there's not as much conceptual mind there. There's not as much obstacle there. It's, and it's very spontaneous. It's laced with what's called tendril or auspicious coincidences happening. The things, uh, so it ha what is that called? Tendril is really the word. T-E-N-D-R-E-L. Auspicious coincidence. Like tendril? Oh, no. It's a Tibetan word. Tendril. Like, you know, when, when we gather like this, we, it, it's called magnetizing coincidence. You, you create, like what Ramdas said earlier, you create the right atmosphere and energy and things come together and things are brought to fruition and things ripen and obstacles come up too. So that's why it's not just, you know, like, oh, I just was happy the whole five days. I bet some of you had some rough times this week, right? Or faced some demons, for example, or whatever. So that's what I would call it. I think, you know, I, I wouldn't even call it intoxication. I think those states can be intoxicating, but that's its own problem. You know, I, I think they're, you know, maybe we'd call them bliss or rapture. Or I love what David just said, you know, every bit of it, you know, is like, it, it is like a heightened state. And glory be, look at what we're capable of. We're capable of so much more than our ordinary life of, you know, f defining the ultimate happiness as, I don't know, drinking whiskey and binge watching something. I forget what it was. World. You know, <laughs> you know, like, look at that. You know, and like, wow, who would have known? It's extraordinarily opening and um, inspiring, but we can also get attached. And that is always a problem because you can't hold on to anything. And it also becomes a sort of, um, it becomes the standard by which we tend to judge everything else yeah. as though nothing else is good enough. Yeah. And maybe something's really painful, but extremely important and ultimately maybe even more liberating than that beautiful state, you know, although the beautiful state is what helps us go on, you know, and uh, so there are just issues, you know, when we, when we think an experience of some kind is the goal. Uh, I also think that there's uh, an element that happens here around trust as a result of the mala ceremony. Uh, I, as you've seen me running around, I'm thinking about all kinds of different things. Actually, I spent half the time in the toilet trying to get the, you know, Mike was getting the guy to fix the toilet, and I was involved with that, you know. <laughs> this is what my mala ceremony was. It wasn't really great. Well, did you uh, fix the toilet? We got the guy to fix it. Is the toilet so fixed, much. Mike? I think it's fixed, yeah. Uh, Aren't we grateful? Yes. And, and then if it wasn't that, it was telling people, don't move over that line. And then, of course, Ramdas was saying, stop telling that to people. Okay? Uh -huh. 
So it was a whole thing going on with that. So I was full of all kinds of stuff that had nothing to do with what he's talking about until we started to do arty, and I'm standing there, Krishnas is singing, uh, and I just happened to look up at Maharaji's picture behind, and it was just a quick look, you know, things happen, they're in between moments, right, in between, they're in the molecular structure or something, I realized, oh shit, you're here, like that. I completely knew that. And then everything fell away <laughs> in a moment. But the fact that whatever the experience is, yes, it, it, holding on to it is attachment and so on, um, but there's a way in which that increases the trust. There is a place, that, a radiant place of love that we can be in. And obviously, uh, Sharon will go, practice, practice, practice is, is the way to bring that into our daily lives and, and be a little bit more, you know, Ramdas, I mean, before his stroke, he talked, he could talk about this stuff like nobody else. Mm. After his stroke, he became that stuff like nobody else. I mean, the true, I have wheeled his chair around in different places and people come we got, you know, we got to get on to the next thing or he's tired or whatever. I have all this shit going on in my head. And people come and they want to just have a moment with him. And I'm pushing him. He takes, the, he puts his hand, jams on the brake, looks back at me. And he is going to be 100% there for that person that, and love them, love everyone. So uh, those moments, we, they, they, there is, they're building blocks, absolutely. And, uh, yeah. I think in some funny way they also help produce compassion because when we're far, far, far away from that, um, but not in a way that's appreciating or using what is happening. We're just um, missing what, what once was. Uh, we can also have a kind of compassion for ourselves, like, look at this, you know, like human frailty or the yeah. human condition yeah. or, yeah. you know, once more. <laughs> I'm like... Yeah. Caught again, yeah, yeah. Um, this is beautiful thing that I found from Thich Nhat Han, and I, I just wanted to kind of bring it up. It's uh, it's uh, it's in Theravadan Buddhism. The, the ideal person was the arhat, someone who practiced to attain enlightenment. In Mahayana Buddhism, the ideal person was the bodhisattva, a compassionate being, who on the path of enlightenment helped others. According to Master Linji, who I don't know who, do you know Master Linji? Some Chinese. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the business, so this is the whole thing around what they call the businessless person. Mm -hmm. yeah. The businessless person is someone who doesn't run after enlightenment or grasp at anything, even if that thing is the Buddha. This person has simply stopped. She or he is no longer caught by anything, even theories or teachings. The businessless person is the true person inside of each, each of us. Is that great? How do you spell his name? L-I-N-J-I. Linji. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a very um, Chinese Zen kind of flavor to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. Dallas a little bit too. Yeah, but right. the, the businessless. Yeah, I call it without agenda. Without agenda. Without yeah. agenda. Like you have a lot of agenda you just described, and Ramdas okay. has a different agenda, which is connecting heart level. But you're serving each other. Yeah. What you do is that's you know Rinpoche had people like you. They were called kusung. 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 Huh. It's like the attendant of the guru. Huh. Very important. Very important, because otherwise none of this kind of uh, situational logic can happen. You know, so it's it's part of it's a, it's an integral part of it. It's a very high role, mm. actually. Thank you. This businessless thing from a more mundane place. The best podcasts are the one where you don't have any agenda at all. And when you, and, and w w once I, <laughs> I didn't mean that, I'm glad you did. You brought that, that came up, you don't have an agenda. But I can remember one of the most terrifying podcasts I ever did, uh, Mark Marin invited me to do his podcast. And that is a scary podcast to do. I guess a billion people must listen to that. And you don't know, Mark is generally kind, but you never know. What if he turns on you? You're doomed. You're doomed. And so I went to his house and uh, we were standing in his kitchen and he gets me coffee and I'm intimidated by, I think he's a really great comic and uh, I just really respect him a lot and I'm intimidated by him. And so we're like sitting in his, standing in his kitchen and I remember he looks at me and he goes, what's your agenda, dude? And I'm like, oh no, man, I don't, I, I don't think I have one. But in retrospect, I know why he asked me that, because he knows that if someone comes into a podcast with some agenda, they want to, they I don't know, pitch something or like be something or well, God forbid they want to be funny, then you en they, they end up falling all over themselves and it becomes a, an absolute mess. So this thing that you're reading is really quite beautiful because it is the secret of a great podcast is to have no business, to just sit down and begin talking, and then this thing comes in. And the moment that you start wanting that, that to happen. In fact, I was talking to someone who was reflecting on the mala ceremony, and she was saying that, and I had the same experience too, where, you know, usually when I do these mala ceremonies for the last several years, what I'll, oh God, it's embarrassing to admit, but I'll be like, God, let me just try to get through the mala ceremony as quick as I can, grab my mala, go to the beach, and it's terrible. But this time I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna do what he's saying and just stay through the whole thing. And it was beautiful and intense and incredible, and then that intensity would go away and be met with uh, just nothing, it would go away, nothing, gone, gone. And you'd be like, my friend was saying, she was like, oh, you want it to come back. You're like, come back, come back, come back, where did you go? And the more you're like, come back, come back, come back, it stays away. And the moment you stop with that, then there it is again, just right there in front of you. It's always there. So I think that's really quite beautiful and is a, a wonderful. Also, with, with sex. Like, you know when you're having sex with an agenda? <laughs> no, you got to know what I'm saying. Like, oh, this is, I want this to be the best experience of her life. Like, I want her to think I'm the greatest of lovers. I want her to think that I... When you do that, you are going to be terrible. Like, it's going to be a terrible three minutes. Sharon, I'll give this one to you, okay? No, I think I'll turn it over. Maybe no comment to call for. 
Well said. <laughs> How do you say that? In Burmese, you say sadhu, sadhu. It's like amen or something. I mean, it's a good analogy, though, for everything, that little... Uh, here, the person who has nothing to do is sovereign of herself. She doesn't need to put on airs or leave any trace behind. The true person is an active participant engaged in her environment while remaining unoppressed by it. Although all phenomena are going through the various appearances, appearances of birth, abiding, changing, and dying, the true person doesn't become a victim of sadness, happiness, love, or hate. She lives in awareness as an ordinary person, whether standing, walking, lying down, or sitting. She doesn't act a part, even the part of a great Zen master. This is what Master Linji means by be sovereign wherever you are and use that place as your seat of awakening. How good is that, eh? Mm. Um, we're getting kind of close to the end. I don't know if there's anyone. I, I did, I did there's somebody who wants to ask a question? You don't know, but it could be. Because uh, somebody has mentioned, Lily mentioned to me, that there's somebody who wanted to ask Sharon something in particular. So it if wasn't we. Me in particular, she approached me. Uh, the question wasn't directed necessarily toward me, the question was. Okay. First presented. If you don't want to answer, she really it, you don't ask have to. David, but I, David. I need to hear. No, I'm joking. She need, oh. I need to ask, hear okay. the question. But anybody have a question? Mike's got a mic, or Josh has a mic. No, Josh has a Josh, and Mike has a mic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another thing that Rinpoche used to say is, "Your guess is as good as mine." said that all the time. Your guess is as good as mine. You know what else I heard he used to say a lot? Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay, a question. Hi. Um, so this is a question I studied on my own. I didn't have a teacher, so I, I've read a ton of stuff. I read a lot of Buddhism, and now I'm, I've taken this veer off into the Hindu worlds, and there's so many lineages and families, but my original thought, or what I thought I had learned before was, you know, your karma had an impact on your next birth, and I thought, oh my god, I could never be a Buddhist. I'll come back as a slug. Someone will step on me in two seconds, because that's what I will have earned, you know, in the next lifetime. Nope, can't be a Buddhist. And then somehow in reading about the, the, with Ram Dass's lectures or somewhere along the line, I learned that we actually choose our next incarnation or we have a role in what our next lifetime is. Like I choose this parent. Um, and I, you know, this, I just read so much stuff and it's completely uncontrolled and edited. So maybe I'm even, you know, this isn't even in a respected lineage. So, can you speak to that? Do is is you know I don't know what what thought philosophy system paradigm that belongs to, but I really like the idea that if reincarnation is something that we do have a part in where we choose to go, like I'll pick that parent or I'll pick 
this situation, or if I'm Jesus, I'll say, I'm going to go with those violent asshole Romans and try to, you know, sacrifice myself for humanity, you know, that, so that's my simple question. I, can I, I don't have an answer, but I've always found that to be one of the most absurd systems uh, that, that, that has been, that I want that to be true, but I just think like, really? Like at some point I'm like, ooh, can you also, can you make it so that uh, when I'm in my 30s, I'll get this like bald spot? Let's do that one. Uh, that'll be great. Let's do that. I want that. I want a little pointy weasel nose. I want to, can you like make me have a, a raspy lesbian voice so when I call down, can you, can you make it so when I call down to front desks, I'm always called ma'am? Can you do that? For, like, and you know, that's just, that, that, by the way, I, lo I love my life, but then when you gaze out at the world and you see, you know, the suffering in the world, and you think, oh, I guess that person at some point, as they were gazing upon the mirror of possible incarnations, they were like, oh, make me the famine child. I want to be the <laughs> famine child who at the age of three falls into a puddle and expires and then is devoured by vultures. I've always found that to be a rather... Uh, a kind of uh, su sweet, but maybe a little lazy way to deal with the, the suffering that's in the world. Because then if I look at someone suffering, I can say, oh, oh, they picked it. Oh, hi, suffering person. You know what? No, I, maybe I'm not going to help you because you picked this one for yourself. And so, so in that way, it seems to... Doesn't it seem so human? Doesn't it seem like such a human explanation of the way things work? Such a using the human mind to try to understand how things go from the state of non-being to being that we produce a kind of uh, intermediary concierge of human existence. has <laughs> <laughs> always struck me as a little, uh, I don't know, it seems a little too, seems like wishful thinking if you ask me, but who knows, maybe. Are you sorry you asked this question? Bravo. I bet you are. Next time I'm picking a six pack though, man. I want to be ripped. Can I, can I, wait, can I just right, add? Wait, wait, wait. Oh. I, I would like to just oh. yeah, add one short okay. thing. I wanted to add something too. Yeah, and then okay. can we do that? But I want to finish with this question. What's your name? Gail. Gail. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I did come up here with no agenda. But since you asked, I do have a book over there about the topic you asked about. All right, okay. perfect. So, and because it talks about karma and um, the six realms, it's, it's called Awakening from the Daydream, Reimagining the Buddhist Wheel of Life. And it does talk a lot about how karma forms. This is not, is, I'm trying to give a modern voice to these teachings, but they're very, very traditional. So it's kind of, you could say, a combination of conscious activity and you could say less conscious act or habitual activity right. that creates our even our next morning right yeah. so of course then it creates you know the evolution of our existence and future existences so part of it is yes you can and Sharon is one of the best teachers there is about the intentional part about it and here's some things you could do to up your chances for a good next rebirth not as a slug listen to her okay <laughs> be kind be mindful you know yeah. these things definitely influence the the karma Perfect, David. Okay. So, I want to give a plug for his book. It's just a really, yeah. really good book. Yeah. And when I first saw it, we were sitting on the stage together. Krishnadas was about to sing, and, and I looked at it, and I said, that is the perfect size for a book. Yeah. 
And David said, everyone's just talking about how, how it's because it's really perfect. My book is too long, frankly. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's perfect because it's, you know, it's like you, you feel like you can take it with you wherever you go. And uh, it's beautifully written. And it's, it's great. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the determinist sort of karmic traditional that's right. That's right. essence that sounds like, you know, versus... That's, see, Buddhism took... Buddha was a rebel in that account. He, he upset the caste system because he said you, you can sh reshape your karma, yeah. but it takes, you know, uh, uh, intention, volition, practice, etc. Yeah. And I just want to tell you that I did debate in my mind, putting on my Facebook page, that Sharon Salzberg said I had a really nice package, but I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's real love. <laughs> that's real. Okay. Did I blurb that book? Let me redo it. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, the last thing that Raghu read sparked a question for me um, because I'm thinking about this concept of awareness that isn't attached to anything, including love. Um, so my question is, what's the difference between pure awareness and loving awareness, and is there one? Uh, I'll just, uh, representing Ram Dass right now, um, I think that there, uh, there cannot be pure awareness without love, he would say. And I think they're synonymous, loving awareness and pure, pure awareness. And uh, not being attached to love in this particular thing, the ex that kind of love that's in exchange has subject object. That's what I believe. What do the Buddhists have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing in a true Buddhist fashion, I'd ask you a question, which is like, what do you mean by love? You know, because if love is the ordinary meaning, you know, very conventional meaning of an exchange or liking or romance or or whatever, then of course it's different. But if it's like, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined, then it seems to be the same. So, But it's awfully hard, it's very hard. I felt like um, I was really uh, up against that again and again, trying to find the words to describe what I was trying to say because it would, it would so often fall back into like when I first um, told a publisher I wanted to write this book, uh, their comment was, uh, well, you know, the love market is really saturated. <laughs> so what they meant was that the how to find a relationship market is really saturated. You know, how to fix your relationship market is really saturated. Not this kind of love, you know. We'll see. But <laughs> It's such a great question, really. So, you know, Katie and I have had a, we usually have topics that come up and the hang this week is we um, started off with, there's kind of fundamental uh, obstacle to awareness. There's considered two in Buddhism. One is um, primitive beliefs about reality, it's called. One of them is nihilism, where you sort of are emptying out the thing and making a solid case for em the emptiness of it. And the other is eternalism, where you're making a solid case for the somethingness of it. So those, the, the kind of awareness doesn't, doesn't land on either of those two sides of the coin. The coin lands on the end. And 
then you have a kind of non-biased view. Then the other one is uh, conflicting emotions, clashes, which we all, we all know how that, you've been talking about that, how that can block you from seeing things clearly. So he's been calling me the nihilist this week. You may have noticed he introduced me two nights ago as the nihilist. I said he should introduce me as the nihilist, formerly known as Nudji. <laughs> you know, and I'm calling him the eternalist, you see. Because there's a dance, a play between, you know, he and I energetically in that area. And we both understand the other side. But so if you see yourself um, getting caught up with either of those, you could release and you will find yourself in a naturally wakeful and a naturally loving space without a doubt. Can, can I just say something very quick to address that? Well, I got to do a podcast once with Roshi Joan Halifax and Raghu. And they have the same eternalist, nihilist argument going on. And it's a really funny argument. And uh, honestly, like when I hear you guys talk, I fall on the nihilist side a little bit. I li I, there's something I think it's so cool. And so, uh, but I also love uh, Maharaji. But I can remember um, leaving uh, Roshi's uh, room. And she, what's her assistant's name? You know, she has that wonderful Noah. Noah. So she's there with Noah. And I don't, you know, when you see like this playfulness that you're seeing that the, these people have. It's so playful and in the moment, awesome. And I, as I'm walking out, Raghu, you'd already left. And I, I, I turned around to them, I'm like, you know, I think, uh, I think everything's nothing too. And then, uh, and then Noah, they, like, Roshi laughs, it's like, yeah. And then Noah like leans from behind her and goes, it's also not nothing. <laughs> it's really cool. It's both at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. We're, uh, we have to stop, I'm, I'm just being told by Mike. We're at the end of the session. So thank you, everybody, and thank you, guys. Thank you, Duncan, Sharon, and thank David. You. Victor.